Well, perhaps you have followed the Larry Nasser case. Uh, he was sent to a maximum security federal prison for 60 uh, years, and if he survives, he will serve two 40-year state sentences in Michigan for his horrible acts of abuse. So Larry Nasser will die in prison. I know little about the case, but Rachel Denhollander, an outspoken Christian who was abused by Nasser, had some profound things to say in the process. Rachel was asked in an interview with Christianity Today, what have the past two decades been like for your faith? And she said, in the beginning, I wrestled with God's perspective on abuse, where he was, why he didn't do anything, and whether or not I was guilty or stained by it. I worked to get to a place where I could trust in his justice and call evil what it was because God is good and holy. End of quote. For Rachel, there is a connection between God's justice and God's goodness and holiness. Later in the interview, she was asked what it means for her to forgive Nasser, and she responded, It means that I trust in God's justice. And I release bitterness and anger and a desire for personal vengeance. It does not mean that I minimize or mitigate or excuse what he has done. It does not mean that I pursue justice on earth any less zealously. It simply means that I release personal vengeance against him and I trust God's justice. Whether he chooses to meet that out purely eternally or both in heaven and on earth. I don't know Rachel, uh, but her comments are helpful. God's holiness and justice provide a foundation for forgiveness and great comfort in affliction. How have you been wronged? Uh, what have your enemies done to you? See, all of us have been wronged in one way or another, uh, although some of us have been wronged more than others. Can we find comfort and solace for our souls when evil has been done to us? Well, the answer is yes, and Psalm 5 can help us find the comfort and the solace we crave. I want you to find deep comfort in God's love for you, but I also want to show you that God's holiness and justice can comfort you as well. Here's a bit of background on the book of Psalms as we go into to a series here on select Psalms. Uh, a Psalm is a song. Uh, the book of Psalms is a collection of divinely inspired songs to be used by God's people uh, in worship, particularly in corporate worship. The Psalms were written by various authors, mostly David, over the course of many years. The Hebrew title for the songbook is Tehillim, or praises. Praise is a central theme, yet the, the Psalms express a wide range of emotion, sometimes very dark, sometimes very sorrowful. Lament accounts for as much as one-third of the entire songbook. Often times, like in Psalm 5, we'll see lament and praise joined together, which helps us understand what true joy is. It's not without tears. The Psalms are emotive, but also deeply theological and doctrinal. Old Testament scholars Dillard and Longman call the book of Psalms, quote, a microcosm of the teaching of the whole Old Testament. End quote. Each psalm should be taken as an individual unit, much different than the Pauline letters where the arguments build on each other throughout the book, but there is an overall design of the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is organized into five books. Scholars Fee and Stewart noted the five books are carefully arranged 
so that they mirror the story of Israel from the time of David until after the exile, end quote. So the Psalms are an organized collection of songs. Now, interpreting these poems takes some skill uh, because various figures of speech are used throughout, so you have to keep that in mind. Um, and most importantly, which may actually surprise you, the Psalms tell of the glories of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke 24, verses 44, Jesus appeared to his disciples and he said this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Psalms tell of our Lord, Savior, and treasure, Jesus Christ. So look for Christ in these lyrics. Uh, he, is, he is here. Martin Luther explained it quite well. He said this, The Psalter ought to be a dear and beloved book if only because it promises Christ's death and resurrection so clearly and so typifies his kingdom and the condition and nature of all Christendom that it might well be called a little Bible, end quote. So these are songs like no other song. And these are unique. These are from God. They are songs through which God speaks to you, through which God strengthens you and shapes your thoughts and shapes your emotions one study note commented, it is not natural to trust God in hardship. And yet the Psalms provide a way of doing just that and enable the singers to trust better as a result of singing them. So let your heart sing the Psalms. Delight in them. Use them to pray. Trust in these songs. These lyrics will comfort you, strengthen you, embolden you, delight you, and empower you to think and to feel and to act for God's greater glory, even when the evils committed against you are egregious. When you groan in your affliction, the Psalms, they can put words to your pain and help you cry out to God. The structure of Psalm 5 is five stanzas. Stanzas 1, 3, and 5 address David pleading with God about himself, and then stanzas 2 and 4 um, are David speaking with God about evildoers? So I've divided my points this morning according to those five stanzas. In the title, we find out that David wrote this song, and it is for the choir master, likely for the flutes. And David began this way. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Here's what I think we can take away here uh, from David. Cry out to the Lord in your troubles because he is your king and your God. And he hears you through Christ. With lament, David pleaded for the Lord to hear him in his troubles. He groaned. He, he wanted the Lord to care. He wanted the Lord to hear, to listen, and to be close to him in his affliction and to help him in his trouble. David had both words and groans for God. It's pretty heavy stuff. And notice David said, my God and my king. David knew authority. He was a king. And that he knew that God reigned and that God ruled over him. And yet David knew the covenant love of God. Now, what do I mean by the covenant love of God? God made a covenant with David, a gracious covenant. He uh, established a relationship with David that 
that he would never break. God's gracious covenant with David allowed David to say, for to you do I pray. Now, who else was was David going to pray to but his covenant-keeping God? God would listen because of his covenant. Morning after morning, David cried to the Lord, and David was confident that his king and his God heard him. In verse 3, the Hebrew is a bit unclear, but it could mean that David was preparing a sacrifice for God or directing his prayer to God. Either way, he was turning to God for mercy. He was turning to God uh, for help, and David watched morning by morning. He anticipated, he expected God to act on his behalf. Why? Again, because the Lord was his king. The Lord was his God. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are in covenant relationship with God, with the Lord. God promises you that if you trust in his son, he will be your God and you will be his people. And because of this covenant relationship, because you belong to God, God hears your prayers. God hears you through Christ. There are likely mornings when you wake up to haunting memories, affliction, discouragement, pain, and trouble. It's as if the moment that your eyelids break, you are staring at troubles that overwhelm you. You may feel trapped right now in where God has you. Well, what do you do? And the answer from the psalm is you cry out to the Lord. You cry out to him, groan to your God, sigh before your God. He will hear your voice. He will hear your groan. Why? Because through Christ, the Lord is your king, your God, and you have his ear. He listens. He cares. The Lord's covenant love is unbreakable. So be confident in him and watch eagerly for him to act for you. Surrounded by evil, David took comfort in God's holiness. And listen to how he expressed it in verses 4 through 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And I just say, whoa, <laughs> right? intense words. But hopeful words for David. Here's what I think was happening. God's holiness and justice were comforting David. Dear saints, be comforted by the Lord's holiness, righteous hatred of evil and those who revel in it, and justice. First, God is holy. He doesn't take pleasure in wickedness, neither does he ignore wickedness or evil. Hallowed is our God. There is no sin or darkness in him at all. Second, evil cannot dwell with the Lord. God is so entirely good that evil has no place in his presence. It may at times seem, from our perspective, that God is doing nothing about evil. He's letting it go. He's not pouring out his justice. And it seems like he's turning a blind eye to the things that are so painful to us. Like he's doing nothing. Where were you, God? But God is patient. And he is storing up wrath and vengeance against all evildoers. And one day will release a torrent of righteous indignation and destruction. 
Third, God not only hates sin, he hates those who revel in sin. The boastful will not stand tall before his piercingly pure eyes. David actually said, you hate all evildoers or you hate all who do iniquity. The the Lord will destroy liars and he abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, the evangelical church uh, uh, in America has misunderstood and diminished the love of God by telling everyone indiscriminately that God loves them just the way they are. God is absolutely love. The scripture says that, but God is also holy and will not tolerate evil. We need to be very careful how we understand God's love and we need to be careful how we understand God's hatred. God's hatred is not at all like human hatred. Not at all. David used what theologians call an anthropopathism. There's a $10 word that you won't remember past now. But he he ascribed human emotion to God. God is not human. He is not capricious. He is not emotional. Theologians call that God's impassibility, another $4 word. So his hatred is different than human hatred. His hatred be very careful how you understand this now, is his counting someone as his enemy and treating them as their rebellion deserves. God's hatred is his covenant action against his enemies. And God has enemies, a lot of them. And you know them. And precisely because God is holy, precisely because God is righteous, precisely because God is good, he must hate his enemies. And he must destroy them. The only other option is for God to tolerate evil indefinitely, which God cannot do because he is good and righteous and holy. One scholar described it this way. If someone is loved by God, it is only through covenant relationship. God chooses to enter into a favorable relationship with that person only because he wants to exercise his mercy, grace and love. If someone is hated by God, it is also through covenant relationship, but one of antagonism. Like Esau in Malachi, God chose not to set his covenant love on him, but he did choose to set his covenant love on Jacob. Favoring is a choice, not an emotion. End of quote. No one is entitled to God's covenant love. And everyone is entitled to God's covenant hatred precisely because we are all covenant breakers. The beauty of the gospel, and you have to see the gospel, the beauty of the gospel says that Jesus Christ is our covenant keeper and through him we avoid the covenant hatred of God and instead receive the covenant love of God through faith. It's a gospel. The reason that running to Christ for refuge is so important and so wonderful and beautiful is escaping the righteous indignation of a holy God. Dear Christian, these verses are comforting because those who take refuge in Christ are spared the righteous hatred of God. Christ bore the righteous hatred of God on the cross so that by grace through faith you would be the delight of God. Because of God's gracious covenant relationship with you in Christ, God cannot hate you. He loves you with the deepest part of his being. And get this, he loves you as much as he loves 
Jesus Christ, his only son, and plans on keeping you for himself because he wants you. David was comforted by these lyrics. Very hard lyrics, but he was comforted by them because he was in unbreakable covenant fellowship with God and trusted that justice was coming. Now some, they find verses like this about God's hatred disturbing. They they don't even want to think about it. And I just caution you, don't go there. Don't go there. These verses should comfort you like they comforted David. Why would God tell us in Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What good is that? Well, that truth enables you to never avenge yourself, uh, but, but to trust in God's righteous wrath. So then you feed your worst enemy. You, you give him some water. You overcome evil with good precisely because you know that the day of God's reckoning, the day of God's wrath is coming. And that is so comforting and good when you've been deeply wronged. Bad theology can't comfort you. Good theology, good biblical theology gets right in the middle of your pain and gives you comfort that God's justice is coming. There will be a day of reckoning. That's comforting for us, is it not, saints? And I love how John Calvin explained this. He so wisely said, quote, let all the godly, Therefore, learn as often as they have to contend against violence, deceit, and injustice, to raise their thoughts to God in order to encourage themselves in the certain hope of deliverance. One use, then, which may be made of this doctrine is this, when we see the wicked indulging themselves in their lusts, and when, in consequence, doubts steal into our minds as to whether God takes any care of us, We should learn to satisfy ourselves with the consideration that God, who hates and abhors all iniquity, will not permit them to pass unpunished. And although he bear with them for a time, he will at length ascend into the judgment seat and show himself an avenger as he is the protector and defender of his people. Amen. Amen. That is an awesome statement. The righteous vengeance of God is a deep comfort to his people. Those Avenger movies, they're fake. They're fake and underwhelming. There is a real Avenger who will protect and defend his people. And all those who oppose, beware. Beware. God's justice is grace for those who rest in the shelter of Christ. Because God's justice was poured out on Christ on the cross. And by his grace, we are safe in Christ. And God promises to destroy all his enemies and ours. And that is really, really good news. In the third stanza, David turned to God's love for him. Listen again. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. The point I'd like to make here is join in corporate worship with awe and gladness because the Lord loves you, is with you, and will lead you in his way by his truth. Verse 7 champions God's covenant love. 
David was able to enter God's presence because of God's covenant love. This text says nothing about David being better than his enemies. David committed horrible sins. Horrible sins. David's goodness or his acceptability or righteousness was not the focus of these lyrics. His lyrics say it all through the abundance of your steadfast love or your covenant love. And David used the Hebrew word hesed, which is a zealous covenant love. David could enter the presence of God in the house of God, not because he was so righteous, but because of God's covenant of grace. David was counted righteous by God because of his trust in God's righteousness. God chose to set his covenant love on David, so David entered the presence of God gladly and boldly. Many people get this wrong, but the, the God of the Old Testament is not mean and nasty and cruel and somehow different than the God in the New Testament. God is loving and gracious and holy and just in both Testaments. He is from eternity and he always will be. He's not different and he doesn't respond differently in history. It is grace. It is love. It is holiness. It is justice. And David bowed before God's presence in the tabernacle with reverence, adoration, worship, terror, and awe all at the same time. God's presence is both terrifying and wonderful for David. God's presence is weighty and heavy and glorious and beautiful. And David pleaded for grace, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Lead me, God. Lead me in your righteousness. God's righteousness, not his righteousness. David didn't want to be caught up in the ways of the wicked, nor be consumed by the wicked. David wanted a way out. And he wanted God to show him the right way out of trouble. Because of his enemies, David needed, needed God's righteous deliverance and God's straight way of escape. So let me ask you, where do you find your way? Where, where do you find God's way, his straight way? What, how will the Lord lead you? How will you know which way to go, what to do in the many situations of life? God speaks to his people through the word proclaimed in public corporate worship. Certainly God is with us all the time, but he is uniquely with his gathered people. We are his people and we are his temple. The gathered people of God are God's dwelling place. He is here right now in our midst and we are worshiping him. We are his dwelling place. And when we are worshiping together in the Lord, worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth, he is with us speaking to us his way through his word. He directs us through his word. So let me be honest with you, you will not find your way if you isolate your people, or if you isolate yourself from the people of God. You won't find your way. You'll be so confused. If you identify with David in his affliction, which I think we all can, then identify with David in his deep, deep desire for worship in the temple, which in our day is the gathered body of Christ. You find the covenant love of God. You find your way in the church. Once again, David turned to the wicked, verses 9 and 10. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out. 
for they have rebelled against you. We would call these words of imprecation. Well, I can't even say it. Imprecation. Thank you. Imprecation. God was calling down, or David rather, was calling down God's judgment upon his enemies. Imprecation. God's judgment. And yet it was not personal vengeance, but rather vindication of God's holiness. Here's the takeaway. Do not delight in evil, but love righteousness and call out to the Lord for justice for his glory. Far from personal vendetta, David was calling out for justice for the glory of God's holiness. It's a good thing to want evil decimated, crushed for the glory of God. Uh, Forgiving your enemies as they revel in their evil is entirely appropriate for us. Forgiveness is part of the gospel and part of our response to the gospel. Yet at the same time, we should long to see evil decimated, crushed, justice brought, and that, that evil would finally come to an end. We crave that. And David ascribed the human condition, described rather the human condition apart from God's grace in these verses. And the Apostle Paul did the same thing as I read earlier in in Romans 3, where he was making a similar point that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. No one is righteous under the law. Everyone is accountable to God. So apart from Christ, apart from God's glorious grace, the natural human heart contains no truth and is a place of destruction and a place of death. Like the foul stench coming from the corpse that's been laying in the grave and it's opened up and it's like the dead speech of the wicked. Flattery just rolls off of the tongue as if their words were sincere, but they are mere lies. David appealed to the justice of God. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their counsels. In other words, God, don't let wickedness succeed. We don't want to see wickedness succeed. Do something to stop evildoers. Respond with strong justice, O God. Their counsels are lies. They're false. God, won't you do something? Don't you care about this? Well, why why was David talking this way? Well, you have to read on. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. David was calling down some serious judgment on these evildoers, on his enemies, because of their horrible acts of evil. Banish evil for the sake of good, God. For the sake of good. Was, now, was David's heart right to talk like this? If we go around, kill them. God, kill my enemies. I mean, whoa, right? Is David's heart right here? And I say yes. And here's why I think David is entirely right to think and respond this way. These verses assume that the evildoers refuse to repent and continue in persistent evil, persistent willful sin. This is not David's personal vendetta. It's not his personal vengeance or hatred of these people. This is a desire to see the justice and holiness of God vindicated. And it graciously warns of God's coming wrath to help people, uh, God's people fear and love and obey. This is good for us to hear. When we hear the severity of God against sin, it should strike in us a certain fear. Not fear like, oh my, God's going to kill me and I'm in Christ and I thought I loved him and now he's going to. Not that. Be very careful with sin. And where it leads you when you say, "Mm, I think I'll do it my way, God. Be very careful, even God's people. 
and, and realize where this ends. God is fiercely opposed to sin and those who commit it. So I think there's something bigger going, in, going on here in David's heart. Verse 10 ends with this, for they have rebelled against you. The primary problem for David was that the wicked rebelled against God. That the evil choices and lifestyles of the wicked were high treason against God's glory, and David hated the thought of God being dishonored in any way. His imprecatory words were about God's honor, about God's holiness. So this is a call for you and me to hate all evil and rebellion against God, even our own. I think I could stand to hate my own sin a bit more than I do. Could you say the same thing? This is a call to love righteousness. And this is a call for us to so love the holiness of God that we plead for justice for God's glory alone. Oh, the marvelous grace through which we find forgiveness at the cross. But what about the unbelievers who persist in open rebellion against God and who refuse to confess and repent and they refuse to kiss the Son? Will God turn a blind eye to evil done? Will he allow his holiness to be openly mocked by people that he created? Never. God's justice is coming. How could Larry Nasser commit such horrible acts? Because he did not love the holiness of God, nor true justice. He rebelled against God so that he could love and indulge himself. And when the world cries foul at Larry Nasser, which it does, it shows that there is a higher righteousness that we are accountable to. Even the world's cry for justice is evidence that God is righteous and holy and should not be offended. And I want you to take the relativism of our culture and apply it to Larry Nasser. It does not work. If you say, well, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Who are you to tell me what truth is? I make my own rules. This is the American way. Does relativism work here? No, because our hearts cry for justice. When there have been evils committed, relativism stinks. It doesn't work. It breaks down in so many different ways. If the judge would have given Larry Nasser two hours of community service for the atrocities that he has committed, the grief of every single victim would have been multiplied upon multiplied upon multiplied because justice would not have been done. As terrifying as God's justice is, it is right and it is good. It is right and it is good. So if we are to hate evil, we must at the same time love righteousness and long to see God honored and revered in his holiness. If we love righteousness, we will long to see the holiness of God vindicated. And so we will pray for justice so that God is glorified in justice. Now, after writing these strong words in this song, David ended with lyrics that I hope resound in your soul for a long, long time, forever. Consider that God takes no pleasure in wickedness, that no evil dwells with him, that no boastful person shall stand before him, that he hates all evildoers, that he'll destroy liars, and that he abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. How can we be saved from his justice? We sin, 
We lie, we hurt others, we do evil things, we rebel against God. Where can we find comfort in this, David? This is not helpful. Pay very close attention to how David ended the psalm. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you for you bless the righteous. O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. Here's what I hope that God does in you right now that he leads you to enjoy the refuge, protection, blessing, and favor of the Lord as you rejoice in the righteousness of Christ. In light of the blaze of God's righteous fury, there is rejoicing for everyone who takes refuge in God. Christ is our refuge. When we flee to Christ, the Lord becomes our safety. The Lord becomes our shelter. The Lord becomes our protection. God is our safe house. If you are sheltered in God, you can rejoice. You can rejoice. You can sing with all your heart in gladness to God forever as God spreads his protection over everyone who delights in his name. He comforted uh, those, the people that, that love him. He gives them comfort. They can exalt in him. They can rejoice. They can take joy in the God of their salvation. To exalt is to feel intense joy, uh, a triumphant joy, euphoric joy. In God, our rejoicing comes from being in the refuge of God's grace in Christ. There is a shelter from the righteous indignation of God into which sinners can run. The shelter is Jesus Christ who suffered the torrent of God's wrath for us so that we could rejoice in the safety of God's righteousness. God blesses the righteous. Well, who is righteous? Easy. Everyone who trusts in Christ and receives his righteousness through faith. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us as a glorious gift through faith so that God now counts us entirely righteous. The, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you take that and, and you read verse 12 with the gospel in mind, it, it takes on glorious meaning that God will bless us in Christ because we are reckoned righteous in Christ. And by faith, as we strive by the Spirit to live righteously, God blesses us with good things in our attempt to live for Him as He provides us strength. We are counted righteous and we walk in righteousness by the Spirit. To be blessed is not simply to receive the righteousness of Christ by faith, but to also walk in righteousness by faith in the power of the Spirit. To be covered here, uh, is to be surrounded in circle. Kids, you might like this. Think of a force field. So it's kind of like a force field. Uh, the shield, as you know, it is a defense against maybe flaming arrows or someone throws a spear or something. And this shield is going to protect us. The favor of God, the goodwill of God becomes for us a protection against evil, a force field of good. So this psalm is for God's people. It's a serious song. But it is a, a deeply comforting and joyful song. This psalm is about your greatest joy and pleasure and happiness in God, in his covenant love, in his holiness, in his justice, in his hatred of evil, in his protection, in his blessing. 
David began with crying out to God, and groaning, waiting, watching for God to act. And David ended the song with exuberant joy in the refuge of God. You see, people who find refuge in God are safe. They're safe to be joyful in all circumstances. He keeps them safe and he blesses them. And even when horrific evils are committed against his children, he cares, he is with them, he will protect them eternally. Now, perhaps you've been abused. Perhaps you've been deeply wounded. Perhaps you've had unbelievable neglect committed against you. I don't know all of your pains, ins and outs, what you have gone through in your life, but I do know that we're wounded people sitting here. We all have stories, and they're painful stories. So perhaps you have been crushed by someone else's cruelty against you, and you're having a hard time working through that, You're having a hard time making sense of where God was. You're having a hard time putting all the pieces together and knowing which way. And you've been struggling perhaps for a very long time with this. So my question is, will you find rejoicing in refuge, the refuge, protection, blessing, and favor of the Lord? Will you run into him as the shelter and find his great blessings in Christ? You see, his holiness and his justice are for you to enjoy, for you to look forward to. They, 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 they should comfort you a thousand times over and give you great joy. God will make things right. He will for you and for me and his people and his holiness and his justice. And so I hope that when you approach Psalm 5, it comforts your soul at a deep level and it, and it gives you so much joy that you're able to, even in the face of horrible things committed against you, you're able to rejoice, you're able to exalt, you're able to move ahead with strength in your step in the name of your King and your God who loves you and will defend you and will protect you. Let's pray. Father, you are so good as our king and as our God to protect us by your great holiness and justice. David had some very good words for us, God, and I pray that they go straight to our heart and our mind and our soul and that they comfort us at the deepest level. See, if we minimize your wrath and your justice, we don't even know how that impacts our own comfort and our own joy. You are a God of love who saves through Christ. You are gracious to so many, and yet all those who rebel against you, you will destroy. And that is hopeful and comforting to God's people. Thank you for making a covenant with us, the great covenant of grace that through Christ we belong to you. You are our God. We are your people, and you will defend and protect us as a good king does. And you will bring justice, and it will be awesome in the final day. And so, God, I pray that the dear people of Jerusalem Church would take great hope and comfort and joy in knowing who you are, the fullness of your character and being, that we would not just limit you to one little aspect. You are not this uh, great loving, uh, fuzzy, cuddly God in the sky. You are a loving, fiercely loving and covenantal and just and glorious and beautiful God who sees all things and creates all things for his glory and you will make it right. So God, thank you for your justice. Thank you for your promises. 
It is a great hope to us. We love you. All for the sake of Christ and his glory we pray. Amen.